Scripture itself. So I've entitled this lesson Church Government Part 1. A very exciting title, I know. Um, but you know, as we begin, I think we need to note that we live in an anti-authority age. You know, if you see a bumper sticker, resist authority, people are like, yeah, that's right. Or if someone says rules are made to be broken, everyone cheers. You can make commercials that way. You know, the rebel in our culture is the icon. The rule follower, no one wants to emulate them. They're kind of the brown noser. They're the person who, ah, stick in the mud. And, you know, this rugged individual, that's the person who we praise. And, you know, in the church, we have a lot of things that lead us to be kind of opposed to authority. Sometimes we're wrong to think, well, look, the Reformation, they returned to Sola Scriptura, so it's me and the Bible. That's the authority. Or... You know, 2 Corinthians 3.17 says, Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We all have the Spirit of the Lord. Freedom. We don't need to have this authority, government structure. That's against the way we should be doing it. Or Galatians 3.29, In Christ is neither male or female, slave or free. We're all one. We're all equal. There shouldn't be any kind of authority or structure. And even on top of this, a few weeks ago, we looked at 1 Corinthians 12 and how in the church... Every person matters. The whole body needs to be working together. It's not as though, and it's true, it's not that some people are more important and others less important. Not as though we can get by with others or we really need them. No, the whole body is needed. And so, do we need leaders? Isn't that kind of opposed to how Christ made us all equal? However, though many of those things are true, their misapplied turn will be, mainly be in Titus 1 5, but Titus, sorry, 1 5 through 9, but we will be jumping around some. But go ahead and turn to Titus 1 5. And David, could I also have you get a finger in 2 Samuel 23, 2 through 4? So we're going to mention Titus 1 5, then we'll look at lots of other things, and then we'll come back and kind of dive down on this section here in Titus. But Titus 1 5. Could you read that for us, Chris? This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed. So here, there's this clear command. There should be order, structure in the church, and these appoint elders or leaders. And so there's this direction. And you know, we often overreact to the abuse of authority, which sadly is a real thing, to then saying, well, authority is illegitimate in and of itself. But authority can be a good thing. We've probably all known a teacher or a coach or a director who, when they came in, all of a sudden everything seemed to flourish. The players did better, the team did better, the play was better, the classroom was better, and everyone is thankful for that good leader. The leader made the whole group better. Even King David, I had um, David, turn there, 2 Samuel 2, 23, 2-4, and in it he's talking about God's blessings. And would you read what he says? The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The Rock of Israel has said to me, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on the cloud, cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Uh, so in there it says, a good ruler is like dawn from the morning, the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning like rain. And so those are all things saying how good a leader can be for the people. 
And we mentioned 1 Corinthians 12. At the end of that, though, he talks about how God has appointed positions of leadership and structure in the church. Now, before we dive any further, I want to just note that church government, polity, whatever you want to call it, is one of the biggest reasons we have denominations. As we'll go through, we'll see some of this today. Presbyterians comes from the word presbyteros, which means elder. Episcopalians comes from episkopos, which means overseer. You know, sometimes Baptists have very distinct church government. And I just say all that to say, you know, we look across many other denominations and see that there's faithful brothers and sisters in Christ in them, and we disagree. And so I at least think this is a secondary matter. And it doesn't mean it's an unimportant matter, but we can say, look, they're faithful Christians, though they look at these same verses a little differently. As we've said before, you know, on the essentials, we want unity, but on secondary matters, we want charity to realize this is how we see Scripture telling us how we should live, so we're going to live that way. But we're not necessarily condemning other churches who look at these things from another point. But I wanted to open by reflecting first on our anti-authority age and just to admit that sadly, even in churches, there have been church leaders that abuse their authority and kind of open up the floor, so to speak. Have any of you experienced that or experienced, I mean, because that can be a common critique of, you know, I was in this church, they're so authoritarian, they were always in my, in my life, being domineering. Well, it's good. Glad they all haven't experienced that. I know that Kate, when she was here, mentioned her earlier, uh, that had been an issue in her past. And then as she went to Colorado and was looking for churches, that came up some there as well in her early looks. But why is our age so anti-authority? Why do we like the rebel, not the leader? Okay. The great, 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 great grandchildren of the Enlightenment. Yeah. yeah. The idea that man has rights before other men and also before God. Okay, yeah. So there's some deep rooted philosophical ideas that are affecting us. Any other reasons we're anti authority? Sin. Okay, yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we talked about the goal of that's restoration, not power play or shame someone or anything like that. Um, well, let's look at some division and distribution of authority in the church. Uh, if you don't want to read, that's fine. But let's see. Jeff, could you turn to Colossians two, seventeen through nineteen? Shauna, could you turn to First Peter five four? I already had Chris read. Amy, could you turn to Matthew eighteen seventeen? Joseph, do you mind reading? Could you t read 1 Corinthians 5, 4? Marie, do you mind reading? Okay, could you read Acts 6, 1 through 5? And then we'll redistribute verses after that. Um, but, 
You know, whenever we talk about church government, we want to begin by saying that really Christ is the head of our church. And that's just not like something we say. That should be really the way it's functioning here. And we see that first in Colossians 2, 17 through 19. Jeff, could you read that for us, please? These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism mm-hmm. Good job. and worship of angels going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. And so the image of a body is used somewhat differently throughout the New Testament. But here he's saying the body grows when Christ is the head. Christ is the one, you know, the head gives controls. The brain tells the rest of your body what to do. Um, And as well, when we talk about elders, 1 Peter 5, 4. Did you have that one, Shauna? Now, who's the, I mean, this is kind of a Sunday school answer. Who's the chief shepherd? Jesus. Um, you know, he is, you know, shepherd there. And that's a context of a passage that's talking about elders. You know, he's the lead elder. And what that means is that we're really governed by his word. It's not, well, what does Jeremy say? It's not, what does Chris say? What does anyone say? Or well, even what does the church vote on? What does Christ say? So we shall be saying, what is he telling us in his word? He is the authority in our church. But he has given that authority to be delegated by certain people. We saw this through last week in church discipline, but I first want to look at the congregation. And there's three things that I believe in the New Testament show us that the congregation has the final line of authority, so to speak. So church discipline, this is the last thing. You go talk to them privately, then you bring two or three. And then lastly, Matthew 18, 17, it says... And this even came up last week because someone raised, well, does it really mean church or should it be to the elders? I said, well, the word is church. So why would we say, well, what he really meant was elders when the word is church. Um, So from there, church discipline, the final final group is not the elders, it's the church. Or 1 Corinthians 5, we looked at that passage as well. Um, Could you read verse 4 for us, please? Sorry, go to verse 5 too, sorry. Alright, so Paul didn't say, hey look, when the elders get together, y'all need to make this decision. He didn't say, hey, I'm an apostle, so I'm going to tell you that this guy is removed. He said, when you are assembled, and if you go back to our very first study, church means assembly. When you're assembled, so the final line in the church for discipline is the assembly or the body. Okay, well, what about when there's issues that need to be worked through? What's the final line? We'll turn to Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Just paint the context. There's some Greeks that are saying their widows are not being cared for as well as the Jewish widows. And Acts 6, 1 through 5 describes what they do. Gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect 
those who please the Holy Spirit. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Procurius, Nicanor, Timon from Nimrod, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. Uh, so, there's an issue. Now, there was a group who kind of led it, and we'll talk about that more later. But, who chose the men who were going to be the first deacons? Yeah, verse 3. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute. They didn't say, hey, you know, we decided, here's seven guys. Can you all just okay them? No, that they were to say, here's seven men that would lead them. Um, so, and then they brought them to the elders. Or, if you look at the condemnations and praises in the New Testament, like the book of Revelation, the letters are written to the churches. The churches are, as a group, held accountable for sins in them. Or even when we looked at Galatians, Galatians chapter 1, who does he condemn for them allowing false teaching? The church. He didn't write to the elders of Galatia. He wrote to the church because the church is accountable. So I would argue, I am arguing, that... Uh, Christ gave his a final authority on earth, because remember, he's the final, through his congregation. However, that being said, he's also empowered a group of men to lead the church, which is often called elders. Now, I say group, because at least in Baptist churches, I don't know what y'all's experience is, especially if you go to Southern Baptist churches, the norm in a smaller church, a uh, church that would have maybe one pastor, not a staff, would be that you would have an elder, pastor, and then you would have deacons, plural. And there's probably lots of reasons for that. We're not going to dive into all the history. But they would say you shouldn't have many unless you're like hiring people to be on staff. But as I look at the New Testament, it seems like the New Testament is encouraging us to have elders, plural, not just a single person, you know, if possible. Um, why do I say that? Well, we're going to look at several verses here. Uh, Titus 1.5. You're there, David. Jeff, could you turn to Acts 14.23? Shauna, Acts 20.17. Chris, James 5.14. And so, we already read Titus 1.5. We'll just read it again. Yeah, so, to appoint elders. Not to appoint an elder, but to appoint elders, plural. Or Acts 14.23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord with whom they had believed. Right, so there's two important things. They appointed elders in every church, singular. So every single church got plural elders. Or Acts 20.17. For Miletus calls them to Ephesus for the elders of the church. Okay, so Paul calls not just the elder or pastor of the church, he calls the elders, implying there's a group. Or James 5.14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call, call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him and over him, plural, in the name of the Lord. So he calls what he calls the elders, plural, of the church. So all that just to say that as we look at all those examples, the model seems to be from the New Testament that you have a group of men called elders, uh, but as we already mentioned in Acts 6, 1-5, through 5, the elders, apostles said, hey, look, there are some things that are important, but 
we need to make sure we don't get distracted from our role doing this other important role, so they set up deacons. Um, we read, we're not going to read Acts 6, 1 through 5. Um, so one phrase that I think can be helpful is the church should be congregationally governed, elder-led, and deacon-served. So who's leading it? Well, the elders are leading it. I mean, we don't have every single decision come before the church. That would be very tedious. Um, so here at our church, that means Keith and I are leading, but the final authority is still with the church. So we lead the church in certain ways, and then we have the church affirm, or they can not affirm, where we're leading the church. Um, and then we're served by deacons in the practical matters of taking care of the extra things, whether that's finances, building up, keep. And at a church our size, there's always a lot of overlap. <laughs> you know, it's not like the elders are going, well, you know, that's trash on the floor, that's serving, so I'm not going to pick that up. Or it's not like someone who's not an elder can't teach or any of those things, but that we see this distinction. Now, I'm going to pause and say, so what we're going to do is the rest of the day, we're going to look at, well, what is an elder in the next few weeks? How does that relate to deacons and some other things? But before diving into that, why is getting the right form of church government really not enough to have a good church? Because, I mean, we could get this perfect. Like, we could just be like the exact model of the New Testament. But why is, though it's good, that not enough to be a healthy church? Okay. It's the only part of the Bible that you are getting right, and your teaching is off. Okay, so. Yeah, to piggyback what she said, um, you know, there are churches that do have people who are out to use elders and have deacons doing church governments, right? Where you listen to their teaching, it's like, uh, why are y'all teaching? Where, where is this from? And it's like, well, they have to be right. There should be a healthy church, right? But they have to have good <coughs> church can then rely too heavily on the government to, to rule the church and so there's no growth and the people that are in those positions those are the people that are in those positions okay so yeah. they feel like well I don't have to serve because the deacons are yeah I don't have to teach because the elders are yeah Joseph were you going to ask yeah, something in the relationships of how the leadership leads, does life with, and knows the people there. All, all that matters. Almost, I would say, it's way more to God than, than the actual structure itself. Or deacons. No, but, I, yeah, I mean, all kind of what I would answer that, too. Because sometimes people think, you know, so we'll just take common example, since we're picking, and we're not a Southern Baptist church, by the way. But people who have come to this conviction then go into a church and they ramrod through getting the right church government. <laughs> well, if you don't have the right heart, if you don't have the right teaching, it doesn't matter if you have the right forms in place. Now, there's a lot of healthy churches who don't follow this because <laughs> there are other things they're doing all right. So this is important, not trying to deny that as we start. Oh, okay, so we're about to teach something. It doesn't matter. No, <laughs> this is important, but it's not enough. You know, we also need the right message with it. We also need the right manner in carrying out our ministry. There's a lot of other things that just, okay, we didn't, okay, got all our boxes checked. Everything is the way the Bible says, so we're good. No, there's a lot more to it than that. But 
just reflecting on this idea of a plurality, more than one elder, um, why might that be important? Besides, the Bible says it. Saying that's the most important reason. But what? Yeah, what might be benefits to that? Accountability. Okay, that's like, a. All right, so accountability. Also authority, you know. Uh, we have, yes, we have a lead pastor, but we have elders, but they have the same authority. You know, they have functional roles so that when you or Keith is preaching, you guys have the same authority because you're preaching from the Word and you're elders. Therefore, it also keeps keeps us from playing a favorite card. Like, or like, oh, that's my favorite pastor. Well, should, should keep us from playing the favorite card because, you know, yeah, those are good reasons. What might, are there any other? I mean, we could probably go on that for a while, but can you think of any other quick reasons why having multiple leaders is helpful? Yeah. Exhortation as well. You have multiple elders. Set apart, but not really set apart. I mean, you're not up on a mountain far from us, but life is a little different for you than it is for me in the church. So leading, preaching, teaching, that has a lot of stressors that the congregation may not feel. And so to walk arm in arm with someone like that could be encouraging. Yeah, shoulder the load together, I think, is a big one because, you know, what is seen is not always what's going on. It can be conflicts in people's families. There can be issues working through. And one person, you know, it's sometimes tough caring for a family by yourself, let alone, you know, multiple families and having a group that say, look, we all weighed this and a multitude of counselors is wisdom. You know, sometimes we think something right and someone else says something and go, oh, okay, yeah, you're, I'm glad you said that. I would have gone down that road. I thought it was right, but you say that. Now I realize we need to reconsider. So those are all good reasons. All right, so let's dive into characteristics of an elder. Now real quick, there's two places in the New Testament that explain this. We're going to look at the one in Titus, not because it's better or worse. It's just the one we're looking at. 
If you'd also look at 1 Timothy 3 on the back of your page, I outlined for you the overlap, comparison, contrast. So you can see there the ways that they are similar, the ways they are different. For the most part, it is saying the same thing. Um, but I, w- I think it's interesting, at least in Titus, that what it begins with and mainly emphasizes is character. You know, there's not a lot about their skills or their competencies. Those are not unimportant. But mainly, the qualifications are their character. And that's, I think, very important, especially today. You know, even today, we hear Elder, we're thinking of the pastor, the guy, the guy in charge, which is not what I think. But nonetheless, that's who we think of. And when a lot of churches are looking for a new pastor, what do they look for? Someone who's visionary, charismatic, good teacher which are all good things to have if you have them. But the most important thing is their character. You know, and that's actually what makes looking for a pastor difficult because how do you determine someone's character in an interview? Um, you know, they're not looking to say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm a thief. I'm going to come in and swindle money from the church. I'm going to backstab the people who don't go with the vision I have. For, you know, no one's going to say that. And yet that's the most important thing. Uh, Jim Elliott, you probably have heard of him. He was a missionary to Ecuador, gave his life up for the gospel. Uh, he wrote in his diary in 1950, I see, he says, I see tonight that in spiritual work, if nowhere else, the character of the worker decides the quality of the work. Shelley and Brian, poets, may be moral freelancers and still write good poetry. Wagner, the classical musician, may be lecherous as a man and still produce fine music, but it cannot be so in any work of God. Paul could refer to his own character and manner of living for proof of what he was saying to the Thessalonians. Nine times over in the first epistle, he says, you know, referring to the Thessalonians' first-hand observation of Paul's private as well as public life. Paul went to Salonika and lived a life that more than illustrated what he preached. It went beyond illustration to convincing proof. So again, character is most important. Now again, that's not to say that skills aren't unimportant, but that the primary thing we should be looking for in leaders is their character. Um, Now before going any further, I have lots of reflection this morning. This kind of raises a question, a list of requirements. I mean, what if someone feels called to ministry? Who are we to tell them? They're not called. I mean, well, this is an external standard. And, you know, we already mentioned we're children of the Enlightenment. Who are we to impose standards on what they should be? What if they feel called? We don't impose standards. God does. Oh, okay. (laughs) Impose them. Okay. I mean, and obviously, most people who have such blatant sin would not be saying that they felt that they were called to ministry. But just as an example, are any other? I mean, we're telling people. I mean, this comes up a lot, especially we're going to get to our church. So we read these things, thinks it should be men. So how could we tell a woman? The Bible says. I don't mean. I'm glad you feel that way. I guess, but you don't fit 
qualifications. I mean, how are we to say that? Yeah. Yeah. And I'll say one thing. Historically, churches have said to feel called to be an elder, and I don't just mean pastor, even later, there should be an internal sense and an external call. It's not just you feel called, but people then affirm it and say yes. And in our culture, we've moved to basically just internal. And I think this is important because when you go, when someone in our goes to a seminary, most seminaries require that the church send something in. But often what happens is no one wants to be offensive. So even if they would never hire that person to be pastor, they go, well, if he wants to, okay, well, who are we to say? But really, we should not affirm someone if we wouldn't let them be an elder at our own church. If we wouldn't let them be an elder at our church, then why would we then send them to some other church? You know, because that church in the future is assuming that some time passed before they went to seminary some church said yeah this person's the real deal and yet we so we don't want to offend anyone that we end up hurting other churches by not saying hey we love you brother and we just don't think right now at least you are being called to this you may be you know maybe there's some areas in your life that if they change you would be called to that but this is not where you're at right now anyways some more qualifications. We're going to get to this eventually. Um, with probably like two minutes left. Uh, we should note as we go through these, there's nothing super extraordinary about them. Okay? That they are not a drunkard. Well, that's not like a... You're a model Christian. That's every Christian. Every Christian should not be a drunkard. So, really, there's only two things in these lists that are not expected of every Christian. And that is the ability to teach. And what's the other one? There's one other... A rebuke skeptics is the other one. Really, an elder should just be a good example of what every Christian should be doing. Uh, and again, that doesn't mean they're going to be perfect because we're all sinners, but they should be models of that. Second, you know, there's a lot of subjective things in here, and we'll dive into that some. And third, these are not exhaustive. You know, it's not like, well, I fit all these, but, you know, didn't say anything about fill in the blank, you know. There are other things like this. Should be people of prayer. Doesn't say that, but that's true. You know, so these are kind of a representational list. All right, but I've taken way too long on all the other things. So let's dive into what it says. First, in verse 6, he's talking about their home life. He says, If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now, you may you notice, or I'll point out, in verse 6 it says if they're above reproach, and then in verse 7 it also says they should be above reproach. And I think that is kind of an umbrella term, saying that in all these there should be no questions about this. You know, when Sarah and I were dating, we were in college, and normally we would, I don't remember what time, but we would make a point to leave early enough, maybe in college town, 11, 12 o'clock, so no one was thinking did Jeremy spend the night, you know, living above reproach? Because, you know, if you see someone's vehicle at the other person's apartment at 2 in the morning, you're going, hmm, I bet he stayed the night tonight. Now, maybe nothing went out wrong. Maybe they didn't. Maybe they slept in separate rooms. Whatever. But living above reproach is giving no one the ability to have that thought in their mind of, what's going on? 
Okay, so that plays out. An elder should be above reproach. There shouldn't be areas in their life where people have a lot of questions. They're going, I don't know. There's a lot of, it's kind of fishy what goes on. Um, so here he starts in the home. So with their spouse. Now, what this means, the husband of one wife has had a lot of debate. Um, some people think that means they could never be divorced. Some people think it means you just shouldn't be polygamous. Some people would say you actually, this means you have to be married. If you're single, you can never be called to ministry. Um, some would say you should never be remarried. Husband of one wife in your entire life. So if you ever remarried, you've had two. Disqualified. Uh, I take the view, and I'm not going to go into all of it for why. I'd be glad to, if you're interested in that, that is talking about someone who's faithful to their wife. That in their lifestyle, it's very obvious that there's no hint of them flirting with other women. There's no hint of immorality, that they're known as a faithful person to their spouse. Um, there are lots of other views there. Specifically, I'll mention a couple of reasons I don't agree with some of the other ones. I'll do this quick. You know, not polygamous. Well, that's kind of like a no duh. Like everyone in their culture agreed with that. That'd be like saying, well, let's make sure he's not a murderer. I mean, we don't even need that on the list. Um, I don't think it's referring to singleness because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, singleness is a gift for ministry. So that would seem contradictory. Um, and then I think what happened before you were a Christian does not affect your ministry as a Christian later. So Paul murdered Christians before ministry, but he was changed in a new creation in Christ. So if someone had a divorce, had lots of illegitimate issues in their life before Christ, and they changed and now for years, they've shown they're faithful to their spouse. I don't think that removes them. Um, and then the next one says, at least in the ESV, and his children are believers. Now I'm going to take a uh, difference with that. I think it should say his children are faithful you can read the word either way. And the reason why is I don't believe that anyone can make their children believers. Um, and as you go on, it's talking about they're not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. I think the point is, especially as you compare it with 1 Timothy 3, is that they are managing their household well. That their children, though not perfect, generally are respectful. They do what they're supposed to. And what's the point? Well, he makes it in 1 Timothy. Look, if they can't lead their house, then how are they going to lead a group of households. And so it's just saying, look, if they can't do it in this minor area, then they can't do it in the rest. I think here it's really important to note that what happens in our home life, our personal life, is the testing ground for everything else. And that's really important because sadly, a lot of times people get this impression, well, if I really want to serve the Lord, my family needs to suffer. They get this pious attitude that, you know, I'm all out for the Lord, and they're spending all this time while they're neglecting their family. Well, if you ever have to consistently neglect your family to, quote-unquote, serve the Lord, you're not actually serving the Lord. Now, yes, there are times where elders have to sacrifice to be with people, to have meetings. You know, we, we can go the other extreme, like, well, they should never neglect their family. But there shouldn't be a habitual pattern of neglecting family so that I can serve God. You know, the first place we're seeing that here is service and family. So real quick, why do you think someone's household is such an important part of determining their character? Well, as my mom says, home is where you hang your hat. 
So a lot, and a lot of times home is a testing ground because that's where you want to spawn the bug. Because mm -hmm. um, nobody sees, well, except God, nobody sees who you are inside. Now, does this mean you're 100% perfect in the home, like we'll never lose our temper, never do that? No, but does show that there's constant repentance, constant forgiveness, and hope, and hopefully constant holiness as well. And it, it is a struggle a lot because when you're at home, you're, you're <coughs> tend to get in your way from everybody else. Like nobody sees what I'm doing, but at the same time, you do have someone who sees what you're doing. And and I guess that's why home is such a battleground is because um, it's, it's show, truly showing who you are. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's important to note that uh, Elder, and again, I'm not just referring to me and Keith as well. Um, their relationship with their spouse and their children sh is to, should be a barometer for our qualifications to lead. Um, and those things can end up removing someone from ministry. Well, the next thing we see that they are seen to be qualified in their character. In verse 7 it says, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. Now we're going to pause real quick. Usage of terms. Now, here he specifically is talking about elders. Now that's the Greek word presbyteros. It's from where you get Presbyterian. Um, but now he says, for an overseer. Well, that word is episkopos, from which we get the word episcopalian. So we would say, look, Paul is saying that an elder is synonymous or the same thing as a bishop. Now, we could turn to Acts 20, and in Acts 20, he talks about overseers, calls them elders, and then he tells them to shepherd the flock. Well, that verb is pastor. So we could look at other verses where pastor, elder, bishop, overseer, episkopos are used synonymously. So as we look at the New Testament, we say these are all the same office. So though most people call me Pastor Jeremy and call Keith, Keith, there's really no reason you couldn't call Keith, Pastor Keith. Or you could just call me Jeremy. You don't have to call me Pastor. Or there's no reason, though it would be very confusing, why you couldn't call me Bishop Jeremy or Keith, Bishop Keith. Now again, I think that would be confusing in our day and age because those terms have come to mean something. But arguing from the Bible... There's no reason why you couldn't do that. I, I'm not advocating that. Again, I think that'd be very confusing. But those terms are just all synonyms. That's why we see, look, it's a, we're led by our local congregation, not some hierarchy structure. Um, and in that, in our church, we have bishops, elders, deacons, pastors. And the bishops, elders, and pastors are all referring to one group. Um, those are the biblical reasons why. But back to Titus. Again, he uses above reproach, overarching statement. And he gives five negatives, things that should not be part of their character. They should not be arrogant, which means basically self-willed. Someone who doesn't listen to other people's counsel. They're obstinate. You know, and this is pretty obvious. You don't want someone leading who is unwilling to listen to others. Who won't take time, again, this is a group, to submit their ideas to the good of the others. They're not quick-tempered. And you, know, you don't want someone who deals with difficult situations, shepherds, people who's going to blow up at them. Third one, not a drunkard. Now, this most 
clearly is referring to alcohol, but it doesn't have to be limited to that. You know, you could become addicted to lots of substances. Uh, but you know, basically showing, look, God, the leader of the church is not consumed with anything but God himself. Not violent, which is a good characteristic. We don't need a leader putting up his dukes. Um, not greedy for gain. And here, sadly, you see both in the New Testament and even today, people who get into ministry so they can make money. Even hinted, or not just hinted, said it earlier by Shauna. Pastors obviously being greedy to get money through this insurance settlement with the church. Uh, then five things that should be positively part of their character. Hospitable, it says, literally lover of strangers, meaning that they're eager to use their resources, whether that's their house, their time, their money, to serve others, specifically strangers. And this is really a reflection of Christ. Because he was with all types of people. He didn't just go, you know, I'm going to hang out with my disciples. He was with rich and poor. He was with Jews and Samaritans, men and women, political leaders, political anarchists, and strangers all the time. You know, the leaders, again, are to be models, again, not perfect, but models of how Christians should act. And Christians are basically supposed to reflect Christ. Uh, they are second on the positive things to love what is good. Rather than being controlled by the love of money, they're to be lovers of good. Third, they're to be self-controlled. As we looked at the fruit of the Spirit a few weeks ago, that's one of the fruits of the Spirit. They're not controlled by a substance, alcohol. That was the negative. They're controlled by the Spirit who leads them to control themselves. Fourth, they're upright, which means in their actions. Uh, and they are to be holy, which means devout, pious to the Lord. You may have heard this saying. It's pretty famous. Robert Murray McShane, he was a pastor. He said, the greatest need of my people is my own holiness. He's saying his holy character is what his people need to see. So elders should be growing in their love for God. Not just, you know, when I was young, I really dove into those things, but now I just leave the church. No, they should be setting the example and growing in holiness. And then he ends with two others. They are to be disciplined, leading lives again of control, and they are to hold firm to the trustworthy word. Now notice it says, as taught. You know, as is referring to the content. As we received, so we pass on. Because again, this is in our ministry. It even says they are stewards. All right. Actually, I think this says that in First Timothy. But it talks about how they are stewards of what they're taught. You know, again, Christ is our authority. This isn't, well, Keith and I, what do we think the church should do? Well, what is Christ? say we should do and we're going to do as we're taught in his word now next week we're going to focus more on what an elder should do those are some really quick notes on the attributes of the characteristics of an elder um any summary thoughts or comments on those or things that we need to emphasize Well, this is so important that, you know, often in churches I've been in, if they're moving someone to be an elder, they say at some time before it, hey, in a few weeks, months, we're going to be nominating this person to be elder. If you know of anything in their life that is not right, let us know. And it's important, again, not to go, well, I don't want to be offensive. And I, who am I to stir the pot? If there's something, we need to speak up. Not, you know, probably best to start in privately. Say, you know, 
don't know if you know this, but I've kind of seen them a couple times blowing up, and it seems to be a habit in their life. And you know, here it says not to be a quarreler, and I'm not so sure that this is an issue that we don't need to work through first. You know, not going well. You know, who am I to judge? But for the love of that person to help them work through it, and love of the church, we don't want to put someone in leadership who has character issues that are already known. Okay.